It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, when reading Japanese manga on your tablet, there's no need to hold the tablet upside down. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom... And Mahoney. Thanks for joining us, Mahoney. Mahoney and Nick went to college together, but since then, Mahoney has joined us for Back to the Future 3, Super Troopers, The Gold Rush, and Madame Dubarry. Mahoney conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In the first round, each question will be worth one point, and in the second round, each question will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today's movie is a Studio Ghibli movie. I believe this is the second movie from that production company. And it follows our hero, a 16-year-old girl, Umi, who is running a boarding house while her mother is abroad. Her father has since died in the, the Korean War. This film takes place in the 1960s in, uh, in the port city of Yokohama. And at her school, there's been a movement to take down something known as the Latin Quarter, which is this large Baroque building that the boys study in and have various clubs in. It's sort of their clubhouse. And there's been a, a movement from the central government to knock it down to build new things. And the, um, the young man, Shun, who is her, you know, um, and ends up becoming her love interest, he is one of the figures of authority in the clubhouse and he is trying to defend it. And so they meet, they team up to clean up the Latin Quarter, to repair it, to bring it into the light in order to get the adults to see its value and not have it torn down. As we go along, we discover that um, Yumi and Shun might in fact be long lost siblings and that the affection they've built for one another, a romantic affection might in fact be uh, unaccessible. And that's the central conflict of the film. Mahoney, if you had one word to describe this picture, what would it be? Identity. Nick? Siblings? And my word would be home. It's time for question one. What do we see Umi doing at the beginning of the picture? Locked in. Locked in. Oh, Nick actually beat your money. <laughs> I, I wasn't looking at you guys. So by audio, Nick won. All right, Mahoney, which means you have to answer first. Uh, so at the outset of the movie, she's making food and raising the flags in the backyard. All right, Nick, what do you have? My locked-in answer was making food. Okay, both of you guys are right. I would have also accepted waking up, walking downstairs, getting dressed. <laughs> Starting her day. <laughs> Starting her day. All right. So I bring this question up because... I think the food is a stand-in for a lot of the atmospheric elements that make this film what it is, including not only the art, the illustration, um, but also the, the sound design. I know last week we brought up that on our first impressions, and I wanted to use the food as a, as a means of getting into what, that, what those details did for the picture. I wasn't familiar with their other works, so I didn't realize they had this affinity for food, but I did notice that it was really center stage for a lot of this film. And it reminded me of, and of course I'm going to blank on the name just in time for the episode, but that other Japanese comedy we watched uh, that was also obsessed with food. Oh. Any luck. Any yeah. luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about... Um... Uh, the, the ramen. Yes, film. yes. What was the ramen film? Tempopo. Tempopo. Yes, yes, yes. Tempopo. Yes. It I, again, I know they're not related, but it did remind me of that where you're just seeing them preparing, consuming, and enjoying food 
for mm-hmm. a majority of the uh, film. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that first, I guess, meal setting, she made a, a serious breakfast. I mean, there was eggs on top of what looked like some kind of brown disc, maybe the Japanese version of pork roll. I don't know. There was rice. There was the soup that went over it. Um, there was, I think, lettuce and some kind of vegetable on the side. Like it was a, a serious breakfast. And, um, you know, it was the entire, you know, boarding house family getting together. There was even the place setting for mom that, you know, got split to the young son so that he could eat a little extra. Um, but throughout the whole movie, I think food was a, a good set piece or usually something integral was happening around when they were eating. You know, she was eating lunch when um, when Shun jumped off the building. She had the she was trying to make dinner i think it was after school when she ran out and then shun you know took her down the hill to um to help her buy the pork and then he bought her whatever that uh pastry looking thing was so yeah i mean food throughout the movie kind of played an integral part i think in setting the stage for usually the important scenes or or the uh, the important interactions between the characters yeah that, that's a really good point i hadn't thought of that i brought this question up because i was you know uh KJ and I had kind of discussed what his interest in the film was and the, you know, the kind of the music and the look of it. But you, the point you make about food being this kind of centerpiece of the film is a really good one. I didn't even notice it, that the, that pivotal moments are kind of joined with food. And I guess it also speaks to like this idea of family, right? Like pivotal moments in your family are usually around a, a dinner of some sort. And in both cases, our main characters, um, Shun and Yumi, have something, I don't wanna say broken families, but differently made families. They're not, um, they're not entirely united. And so this idea of food as that kind of, uh, both that linchpin that marks points, not, not linchpin, excuse me, this, this point that, um, that tells us when something important is happening in the plot or marks something important in the plot also kind of indicates what's missing from these people's lives. At first, I didn't even know Umi was a student. I thought she just literally ran this boarding house. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I put her, she puts her little uniform on and goes to school. Like, oh, she's just uh, kind of doing that on the side. I mean, that was a real meal as Mahoney was saying. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that poor girl too. She's in school running a boarding house her grandmother seems to do nothing <laughs> finance the operation that's she, what I maybe yeah she did hire her that uh that maid yeah yeah oh yeah let's thank you for hiring me a maid um yeah and her her mother you know, her father's dead and her mother is is off in america so um there really isn't that kind of central family structure um so it is interesting. I also, we talked a little bit about the music as well. Um, so the music is this kind of like jazz fusionist thing that's going on. What did you guys think of that and how it how it uh, affected the picture? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, as I said last week in my first impression, I was a little surprised. It wasn't, you know, having no indication as to what score would accompany the movie. I was not expecting more of a 50s jazz kind of not quite big band but this wasn't exactly the picture that I expected to be accompanied by it but I think kind of the style of animation um, for whatever reason combined with the the brass and the the instruments in the background kind of oddly worked for me in a sense that um, you know it was kind of that I, I don't know, like bigger Japanimation sort of thing where the, you know, the g- giant facial expressions and everything's a little more comical. And, but, and for some reason, putting that kind of jazz band score in the background, I don't know, not to, you know, use a pun, but kind of sort of struck a chord with me and, and really worked. But um, <laughs> I will say in my first impressions last week, which you can find on our YouTube channel, I did also mention how, I thought the music choice was quite interesting. Even when I was listening, I was like, some of this is like a European Western type vibe with that anime style. It was very interesting combination and it did work. Yeah, it it sounded, I don't, you know, I should have maybe done more research on the music, but it had a, it had a sort of kind of later jazz feel. It's 
very happy. It's a very upbeat type music, and it and it is Japanese. We have a Japanese singer um, uh, performing the music, and I think having wrote it, but it it has a it does feel like you're saying Nick very kind of Western, very European, almost very French, possibly like French yes, or American. Yes, yes, that was yeah. some 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 scenes. I that's the vibe I was getting. I couldn't yeah. quite place it. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is this kind of. Um, Western, these Western nods throughout the picture. And I think the music is part of it. And it's interesting because it is about like past and future, you know, the uh, the past and modernity and things like that. And these kind of nods to the West or this kind of Western influence that's getting in there do make the picture, you know, I think more interesting or, or saying something about what the picture is doing. It's time for question two. What do the flags that Umi hoists every morning represent? Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? Something to the degree of this is the way home for someone who's out at sea. All right, and Mahoney, what do you have? Uh, I was going to say essentially prayers for safe travel. Okay. Um, so <laughs> it, it is, uh, I wish you a pleasant morning. Um, so probably no Nobody. points here. <laughs> yeah. They, um, we danced around it. It was something pleasant. You did, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very, I mean, I could give you both points, but you know, it's, nah, it, we, it we doesn't really matter. We deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it represents the letters U and W, which, um, together are supposed to mean, you know, uh, I, I hope you have a pleasant morning. So I want to talk about the kind of role of, um, the role of the past and the role of kind of parent figures. We touched on this a little bit in the previous question, but the role of these parent figures in the picture. The flags that Umi hosts every morning, um, they're overlooking the, uh, the Bay of Yokohama, which was a you know an important bay in terms of, um, or in, excuse me, an important body of water in terms of the Japanese effort during the Korean War, and as we know from the picture, her father was killed uh, in the Korean War, sailing out of that bay, and she hosts the flags in honor of him every morning, and the person who sees it is her eventual love interest. Uh, Shun, who, you know, is on the boat with his adopted father. Um, and I was wondering how we can talk about uh, parental figures and how they factor into this picture. One of the things they really go over in this movie is family is what you make it, if you will. Uh, Umi kind of creates her own family. Yes, she does have her grandmother there, but that's why she's really I don't want to say almost like obsessed with this boarding house. She likes having a lot of people around because she knows her mom isn't there. I mean, she comes mm -hmm. in at the end. And Shun, he thinks he's part of this normal family unit, but only finds out later that he was adopted. So he, he kind of gets turned upside down with that as well. So he, he thought he had the stability and in fact, he didn't. Yeah, he knows he's adopted, but they have the parent wrong. The original oh, parent. correct. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. That I, I, you absolutely right. It's been a few weeks since I saw this. We had some schedule changes, mm -hmm. but yes, who he thought was his lineage was incorrect, mm -hmm. but he still in the same way made, that's right. To my original thought, made family is what you make it. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah. I don't think it changes your point very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just the facts. Yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily get the feeling that this movie had a, a statement that your parents were the be all and end all of who you become. It was more of a, you know, sort of honoring the past, I guess, in terms mm -hmm. of raising the flags and then, you know, Shun's, I'll call it quest sort of to find out who his actual father is at some point. And you get the flashbacks to when he was adopted. And then the story uh, when he gets the final uh, runs into the third man in the picture on the boat and gets essentially the final, uh, word on who his actual father is um, but at no point really in the movie was it integral to the plot other than 
you know, potentially sharing a father as to who their parents were. So they were sort of kind of paving their own. They were, while at the same time trying to preserve the past in terms of the Latin quarter, they were really paving their own way forward without necessarily parental interference for the most part, it seemed like. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the, the, it's odd because the it's actually a lack of parental interference, right? <laughs> you know, the, the parents aren't that involved. The mother is is literally not there. Her father's dead. His parents are dead. Um, you know, his adopted parents seem to be somewhat hands off. Uh, at least you get the impression relative to to the other people. Um, that tugboat's not going to drive itself, okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got a. They're they're Shun is definitely from blue collar people. And it seems like Uma, Umi is, is not. Uh, actually, her parents are mixed. One's a professor and the other was a, uh, a naval captain. Or It's literally up the hill and down the hill. Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're coming yeah. down all the way down there, you know? Like, yeah. And there's apparently some conflict in them initially getting married. Um, but there is this, this idea in the movie, which is also true in like Shakespeare plays and kind of in Renaissance stuff, of clearing the past, of making the past uh, legible, right? So we can go forward. And that's how the relationship is able to eventually advance. And we don't see it consummate. I mean, this is a coming of age story. They're 16, we're, we're not gonna see anything like, we're not gonna see any kind of, um, any kind of physical expression of, of their romance. But in order to figure out that they're a match and that they're able to be together, they kind of have to go back to the past and set it straight. And they have to, you know, kind of carry that past forward with them. I think that's kind of the whole movie in a nutshell, sort of, mm -hmm. between the saving the Latin Quarter, moving into the future. It's essentially establishing the past to figure out where you're going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that is like the big thing. And I think the, the conflict of the Latin Quarter and the conflict of the relationship are they're sort of enveloped and and mirroring one another. I think that's why I'm only so-so in this film because I know the major point of it was the respecting the past while moving forward type, you know, scenario, which I got, but I actually was more interested halfway through the film when we found out this little side mystery and that intrigued me more, but I know that's not really like supposed to be the focus of this film this the side mystery the the parents yeah movie? yeah that actually know, I, like intrigued me more than what this movie was supposed to be showing us and i think for an audience who enjoyed the main premise more then they would really like this movie whereas it took me about halfway through once they threw in that little extra mystery for me to really be like oh, okay i see why we're watching this which yeah. some people may just dismiss yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, and I'll say if we're going to levy a criticism, the, the movie does take its damn time getting going. Um, I think maybe I'd say that's about halfway. Like, I was like, why am I watching this? And then, yeah, I was, there, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there isn't a kind of, um, it, it for me still works because they have, the, the director has a, a certain affection for these characters, a great affection for them. But I certainly get the point being that I've seen this movie, I think, maybe three times at this point in the last two weeks, that latter viewings are much more enjoyable um, because you're not wondering why, why this is taking so long. See, and I guess the first kind of viewing of it, I thought the whole brother-sister thing was kind of dumb. And the reason being, you know, I enjoyed the plot surrounding the Latin Quarter and all that. And I got that, you know, you have a love interest, but it just seemed so stereotypical of a movie that you just have to pitch some kind of conflict between the, the potential male and female love interest, whether it's he says something dumb or she does whatever, and just happened to be in this instance that they might be brother and sister. So if you look at it from, I guess, tying it into the overall plot and, and the whole, you know, setting up the past for the future, I guess it makes sense. But the first time I watched it, I was just, I was just thinking, oh, this is stupid. It was just kind of tossing something into you know create relationship conflict on the b story while moving through the movie a twist <laughs> <laughs> i do see the criticism yeah yeah it's i mean i it's sort of standard romantic comedy um in the sense of you know like i was i was reading a play by uh 
by Beaumont and Fletcher just last week, or like contemporaries of Shakespeare. And they have a tragic version of literally the same plot of like, this guy thought this woman was a sister and he falls in love with her and she with him. They don't know what to do. And then later at the end, it's like, ah, you're not really, you know, solution and, and, and all that type of thing. I really thought they were going to go down the incest line with this one. Right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not quite. Um, but I, it's odd you guys both say it's the B plot because I really read it as the A plot and that the, the Latin quarter was the kind of the, the mechanism by which these two people, especially Umi, can get close to him. Because she's initially in romantic comedy form, kind of dismissive of him. He's, he's a little bit more brash than she cares for. The reason I lean towards saying B is it really takes about half of the movie to even like introduce that topic or that plot line. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I say the B plot, if you will, but that is actually the one that engaged me more, which is really not saying too much, you know, because I have seen similar things like that before, but the first half was a little slow for me. Well, you, you saw it coming when he jumped off the roof and then she walks up to the, I don't know, whatever that little pond thing he's <laughs> sitting in and drops him back into it. So at that moment, you see there's a love interest story mm -hmm. building. Um, and I guess I could see if you couch the movie as a, as a romantic comedy, that would certainly be your a plot, and the 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 Latin Quarter would be your your subtext or your your precursor to putting the two and two together. But I, I just for whatever reason, when I was watching the movie, I was I was more invested, I guess, in the Latin Quarter story. Maybe because, like I said, the first time I saw it, the whole brother sister thing I thought was just a, a dumb twist to kind of create conflict. But I, I was definitely more interested in what happens to the Latin Quarter than the two of them getting together. All right, gentlemen, at the end of round one, we have a tie at one. One point. The second most exciting tie you could possibly have. <laughs> We're going to break. We will see you in a moment. Bye-bye. This advertisement is brought to you by Handsome Mice. High cheekbones and blue almond-shaped eyes. That's a handsome mouse. Straight white pearly teeth and a rich orange tan? Now that's a handsome mouse. Wavy hair and a square jaw? What a handsome mouse. You know what you need for a pet. A damn handsome mouse. Ugo pets no more. Buy a damn handsome mouse. And we're back. Mahoney, we're at the key part of our episode where we ask the guest a pivotal question. If you could watch from up on Poppy Hill with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, actually, out of anybody I thought of, I would actually watch this movie with KJ because I feel like he, this is absolutely like in his wheelhouse. So I was trying to think of anybody I might know who might be interested in this movie. Or, and then I was like, oh, maybe if I was watching it with a historical figure or whomever and trying to run through history. And I was like, you know what? I feel like he would enjoy it and I might enjoy it more just through his senses. And he's probably seen this movie, I don't even know, umpteen thousand times at this point. And I saw the note, he like listens to the soundtrack while making breakfast. So I, I just feel like I might enjoy the movie more watching it while he's sitting there. Yeah, I probably would say the same person because... Uh... He's the one who brought this to our attention. The, the man behind the curtain, <laughs> uh, who we owe a lot of the, the editing and producing of, of these episodes to. Uh, this definitely was a KJ pick. And uh, Tom is doing a great job asking questions on a KJ pick. <laughs> but uh, he definitely would give you a little bit more flavor in what he thought. In fact, uh, I read those similar notes and I know that he was not as intrigued with the sibling plot line versus the overall arcing uh, plot of the old, learning from the old and uh, uh, embracing the old, but also looking ahead to, and he would say it much more eloquently than I could. But uh, yes, he would be the one I actually would watch it with. And maybe one day I will talk to him about it. Yeah, KJ is a good person. I, I had a long conversation with him um, in prepping for this. And we, we ended up having, I think, similar readings of the movie. 
Um, I'm surprised that he also was uh, less intrigued with the, the sibling plot. Um, you know, it seems like that for me to, to fit so well into it, but you know, he, would be a, he would be a good match to this. He also really knows the, the Ghibli films very well. And it's, it's interesting to come to a movie that has a house style that you're, you're not entirely familiar with, or you know, you've only seen a, maybe three or four of them. Um, and it's like coming to a new director, right? Who's, who has a bunch of, of works. Uh, and so kind of getting the getting KJ for the kind of Ghibli perspective would, would also be nice to do. It's time for question three. What other club is located on the same floor as Shiro and Shun's literature club? Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? There's a few I remember, but I'm going to go with, oh gosh, it's one of these two. The Philosophy Club. Okay, Mahoney, what do you have? Uh, my memory was archaeology. Mahoney gets the point. Oh, no. There was also yeah. a science club. I wasn't going to get archaeology. There was a science yeah. club. Those are the only two I could remember. They were in the house, but they weren't on the same floor. Uh, yeah, the philosophy oh, club was right. in that little shack on the, yes. uh, the land. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The little, yeah, that was, it turned out when you rip it away, it's just filled with garbage. What's um, kind of interesting about that building, too, the spatial dimensions are all askew. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. Like, there are unrealistic corridors and levels and mm. just like anything can fit in there that needs to fit in there yeah it's it's a bit of the film's magic is is the latin quarter building um and it's where for our audience it's, it's where all of the the clubs meet and the clubs are organized by academic subject hence the name latin quarter right it's taken from um the french districts in outside of the University of Paris that, you know, that title. And it really is like filled with this kind of boisterous and excited energy. Um, and it's a beautiful building that's just covered in crap. And, uh, and they're all like in love with their studies and, um, you know, publishing things. I mean, it is really like this kind of intellectual house. And I, you know, wanted to bring this question forward because how do we read the Latin Quarter? How do we read its like place in the movie? And how do we read it in terms of those forces that want to push it aside? Uh, I, I mean, it it definitely looked uh, about a half a step short of a junkyard with the before <laughs> they cleaned it, the amount of stuff that was floating around and the the philosophy shack to the wall and um, everything else. It, it it was kind of part like. I don't know, high school boys clubhouse and part, you know, after school, I don't know, just place to learn, I guess, um, in that, you know, to look at it, you'd think people would be running from room to room playing like pirates or cowboys or something, but you're hopping from philosophy to science to archaeology to the paper where they're, you know, mimeographing tests and all this other stuff. Um, so it, it was definitely an interesting the, the visual was kind of, I don't know, I thought kind of cool in terms of, it, you could definitely tell it was a, a high school boys place to hang out, but you wouldn't expect the place to hang out was also the place where, you know, the astronomy club had been studying what was it, the sun, I think for seven years and they learned it was bright. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I definitely, the, the aesthetic of it, I, I kind of enjoyed. I thought it was funny that Umi's big idea and the rest of the girls to, uh, to save the place was, Hey, how about you just clean it up so it doesn't look horrible? <laughs> it's like, oh, we, we never thought it. We're so deep into our studies and our interests that we never thought about how horrible this dilapidated building looks. <laughs> and it also looks kind of wonderful, too. Yes. Creative chaos, if you will. Yeah. yeah but you do need to clean it up. It's, in, it's this really creative place, but it's also in cleaning up, you kind of expose it for what it really is and its real beauty. You sort of have to let in the light. And that's also true of the couple and their own, you know, their, their family houses. There ha there's this kind of exposing of what's actually gone on in, in these family houses. And so, you know, you have the kind of the, the letting in the light in, in both cases. I was also interested in, do we see the, the Latin quarter as this kind of like 
old thing that's precious and need to be preserved, albeit dusted off? Or is it like something else? One of the things I was talking to KJ about was this kind of like um, the old versus the, the modern. Um, and like the forces that are coming in there that are trying to knock it over are like modernizing, you know, they're trying to clean things up. And it's interesting to have like the kids rebelling against like the modern forces in favor of this like older structure and this older thing. It's almost like a, like a conservative rebellion, more like it. This might not exactly support your hypothesis here, but when I was watching it, it made me think of like the olden times of the philosophers in ancient Rome or Greece, really contemplating these bigger things, but letting the doldrums of life not really impact them. That's what it made me think of when we're really representing the old. Mm -hmm. And then the new was just like, hey, that's great to do all the thinking, but we have things to do. <laughs> See, I, I went on a much, much shallower plane when I was looking at this. I kind of attributed the house to something akin to like Animal House. or PCU, I knew you were going to say that. I knew or, it. I just knew you were going there. Or, yeah. or, or like Dazed and Confused, like any of those movies where you have like it's the the high school or the college kind of rite of passage sort of thing or the the clubhouse that the the kids get to hang out in so i didn't see it so much like these kids were trying to save history so much as they were trying to preserve this club that they got to be a part of whether it was or one of the clubs within this this latin quarter that they got to be it was part of their high school rite of passage to be able to hang out there and you know, it's it's not a keg party or a toga party, but instead you're doing philosophy or, you know, running tests, you're, you know, staring at the sun, whatever it might be. So it was a, obviously a higher intellectual plane than any of those movies, but it was kind of that rite of passage. Latin quarter belongs to, you know, you, you go to school here. This is where you socialize and hang out and learn outside of school and trying to preserve you know, what prior either generations or years or classes had, had gotten to, uh, to utilize. Yeah. I, and I think it's both because it is, um, you know, it is this, it is this boys clubhouse. It's, you know, like you're saying, it's not exactly animal house, but it, you know, it is this um, place to, to hang out and be like a boy and be young. And, you know, when, and the kind of forces of modernity are coming in to knock it over. Um, but it's also, you know, the nation trying to grow up. I and mean, it's a 19, a movie that takes place in the 1960s. Uh, it's a movie that's, um, that's talking about in some ways, like the Tokyo Olympics, which were the first Asian Olympics, which is, you know, this kind of modernizing moment. Uh, it, it's a very subtle detail and might be a bonus question. <laughs> so I, I won't tell you uh, how, how I know it's the, the go Tokyo, on, <laughs> Tokyo Olympics. Um, but it's, you know, so there's that, that kind of energy of, we are now um, going to be modern. We're going to be more open to the world. This is a sixties world. Now it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the year that Jap Japan joins the modern state. And there's this place, this Latin quarter, which I think like you guys are saying, it does reek of the old, uh, like Nick, you were saying with the, the philosophers and you Mahoney were saying with like this kind of place where children can go and play. Um, but it's also, you know, like a child's place, right? It's like children grow up and become modern, right? They don't, they don't stay in that kind of regressed position. They, you know, they, they have to become part of the contemporary world. And so I think for me, like the house is also this like, liminal place between you know the old semi-traditional though I don't think traditional is the right word and this kind of coming modern modernity um, which also mirrors the coming of age of, of a lot of these kids it's time for question four how does shiro calm down the students when the debate over the latin quarter gets out of hand locked in which one was Shiro? Shiro was the, the Carl Rove of the Latin Quarter. <laughs> he was the guy with the glasses who made everything happen. <laughs> I loved him. <laughs> was, oh, oh, oh. That's oh, all you could okay. think. I was like, oh, it's skinny Carl Rove. <laughs> I'm drawing a real blank here. 
I can't even remember the scene. Is this the vote? It was like a vote. I don't I don't remember a specific vote. There was a vote about whether they should um, tear down the Latin Quarter and all the people that it was clearly a different scene. So I'm gonna lock in. All right, Nick, what do you have? He offers them the answers to the tests that are coming up based on all of his prior research. All right, Mahoney, what do you have? I don't know if this is right, but all I can remember is they broke out into song. So I assumed he got them to break out into song. And Mahoney wins the episode. Uh, That's it. I don't okay. remember that at all. Yeah, they have a debate over um, over what whether or not the Latin Quarter should be allowed to, to be knocked down. Of course, it's just between the students. So there's, you know. Wait, that's <laughs> the vote. That's the vote I was talking about. There oh, was, was it? What were they voting on? They weren't voting on anything. I think they were having a debate. They were hold, holding a debate on whether or not to knock the Latin Quarter down. I thought they were saying, like, are you going to the vote or something? Anyway, they were going to the debate. Back. Yeah. Oh, uh, it was a debate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least I somewhat knew what the heck you were yeah. talking about. Yeah. Broke out into song. Oh. Mm-hmm. The school song, which I love. You know, I, I, I do really like that scene. That the, the way of dealing with kind of conflict is already organized, including the body movements. And, you know, they just have this kind of like line of dancers on stage singing. Um, it's all coming back to me. Yeah. Yeah. But both I, sides I, got together. I got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to sing the song. Yeah. I, I, think the you know the, the coming of age thing yeah kind of mirrors as i said before the sort of like the the problem with modernity you know the coming of modernity but it, it's it's interesting for me as well because there isn't i don't think a, a winner in that fight between like the coming of modern the modern the new and the old and i think that that makes the coming of age genre a really good genre for for this for this picture or for this idea to be found in this picture because you know coming of age is like you become an adult something happens and you are no longer innocent anymore doesn't mean necessarily you're like sinful or something you're just you're not a child anymore you're not innocent um you're now part of it and for both these characters it seems to be you know their first real romance um and it and what that involves for both of them is not a kind of forgetting of childhood or the past, but a sort of ability to recognize what the past is and carry it forward into the modern. And I think that's what's going on with the with the Latin Quarter too. It's the, the president who I don't even know what he's president of. I couldn't figure that out in three viewings. Um, but the guy the who's going to school, gonna, yeah, like like I, I look look at that as like a superintendent. Or like the he, trustees or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, he had, so the, the question was going to be about the, the Tokyo, was it 68 Olympic poster, which was in his office. So Four. I, 64. Okay. I thought he was, um, I thought he was like on the committee for that or something. And they're going to knock the building down for the sake of building something, but for the Olympics, no, it was something, it was university-based or, or school-based. It was just like going to be a newer building. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I had a little trouble following what that guy's job in the school was. Yeah, I thought he was like a superintendent, like looked over the whole district. Yeah, that type of thing. Degree. Okay, yeah, sh- sure. I, I, that, I think that makes as much sense as anything else. Um, but yeah, I think what, what makes the movie interesting in the scene where he comes to visit is that he isn't a villain. He isn't the guy they have to defeat. He's actually fairly congenial and actually very funny. Um, apparently in the American version, Bo Bridges voices him. Uh, um, He's had a very different in the original version. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is a nice guy though. I mean, he, he jokes like I like- Well, when... Umi is the one who makes the connection there though. The boys were sinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he jokes with them, though, right? Doesn't he? They say, he says, why aren't you in school? And they say, we escaped. And he's like, we escaped. <laughs> I did a lot of that myself. Um, and even when they go to the school, they go. he goes to the astronomy club and asks them what they do. And they're like, we have been observing sunspots for 10 years. He's like, what have you learned? We have learned that our lives are short and the sun is, is old. 
we have no discoveries yet. <laughs> he's like, ha, 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 very good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's just this kind of congenial guy. And so I don't think the modern is no necessarily like threatening here um, in the same way that like getting older isn't necessarily a threat. I think it's just a movie about balancing those things, about being able to keep both those things going. I think it had a more lucid coming of age ending than a prior movie we watched this year, Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, God, I, I actually, I've already forgotten how Footloose ends. I, they get together probably. We gotta dance. And yeah. then they find a place like right outside town. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they eventually get the dance and it ends with them dancing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then John Lithgow dances too with his, uh, with Diane Weiss. Anyway, but um, I don't know. I was wondering, so that's kind of my reading of that stuff in the movie. And I think it's kind of Cage's reading too from our conversation. I was wondering what you guys thought of this, you know, this idea of, is it a balance of um, old and new or something else? So, I mean, you know, kind of towards the beginning of the movie, I think what's it, Umi's grandmother says, I hope you find someone else to raise the flags for. At some point, if I remember correctly, and then by the end, she's raising the flags for you know Shun at that point, her love interest. So I, I, I mean, I think the entire movie is sort of moving towards the future, but building on the past as opposed to getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. More of a, you know, the the Latin Quarter doesn't have to go in order to make room for whatever's going to come next. You know, sometimes yeah, you got to clean it up or or make it look more presentable. Um, but it, it can still coexist with <clears throat> whatever school renovations or, or modifications um, or modernizations are coming in the future. Same as, you know, just because you still raise the flags for your father who passed away doesn't mean you can't also raise the flags for the boy who's on the tugboat on the other side of the, um, on the other side of the garden that you didn't know was there in the first place. Yeah, I think, Moni, that's a great point that it's like you can raise, he, she was raising them for her father. And now she's raising him for this this boy, um, who's like the new, the new whatever, the new generation or, or or what have you. That's a really good point. Yeah, the flags do that work, um, and the movie ends in the flags too, right? In that that watercolor. That's what you see in the watercolor is this kind of impressionistic uh, painting that one of Umi's borders paints. But the one kind of non-impressionistic thing are the flags. The flags sort of stand out. Yeah, and I thought that was funny how she found out that's how the you know he was seeing the flags was when she saw that painting um when she was in her borders room the first time was like oh where are those flags oh the tugboat down on the water that you can't see because you're in the garden that's how she kind of puts two and two together to figure out how the you know the poem ends up in the paper and all that it's time for movie rent i have to say one thing that caught my kind of made me really like this movie was there's a lot of these like little details that um very small details that are are not necessarily strange but very affectionate um when uh shun tells umi that they're actually uh half siblings and it kind of they're walking in the rain and um he you know he has an umbrella and he's or she has the umbrella and he's walking with her under the umbrella and he takes out the photo and shows the photo of his father, which is, is her father. And right before he goes, he just takes her hand in this kind of gentle way and lets it go as he goes off. And the movie is, is filled with these like little bits of affection. Um, it's, it's filled with kind of this like love and energy, um, but it's, it's contained. It's kind of, uh, I don't wanna say pushed down, but circumscribed by these kind of little tender moments that come out. Um, and I think the the ending, that last shot of the, the impressionistic painting is this sort of explosion that not only is the relief of everything having worked out, the Latin quarter is preserved, the, the romance is able to begin because uh, they're not actually siblings, we know what the past is. And once all that is set in motion or, or set right, there's this like beautiful explosion of color uh, on which the movie ends. And it feels like, it feels like a release. Well, I did see those tender moments you're talking about. You do have to look for them. And what was interesting too, 
is that even in, and you're going to laugh at this because this is animation, but the facial expressions still did denote a lot of attention and care, Mm -hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting for animation. They're they're interesting characters because they're not, they don't have a thing, right? You have Umi who is sort of old before her time. Uh, she, She runs a boarding house. Her mother is a professor of physics, but who is touring in America, so she doesn't see her. And she goes to school and she sort of takes care of things through the newspaper at the school, but she's living this kind of adult life. And she does it with, you know, with such grace that until that scene when she discovers that uh, Shun might be her brother and you see her just kind of under the covers and not moving, I think that's the first time I kind of recognized, oh, this person has been kind of forced into being an adult before she was ready to be an adult. And now we're seeing like a girl whose heart's broken, right? We're seeing her like experiencing this kind of like childhood thing that's also the end of childhood. You know, your, your first heartbreak is sort of like, <laughs> you're in it now, you're, you're an adult now. Um, and that was an interesting moment for me to kind of go, oh, she's like, she's like really young and has all of these duties. And yet she has this actual kind of formative experience of adulthood and, it, and she, she just, she takes it on like a child yeah and uh and shun handles you know possibly finding out that he's her brother kind of like a kid and that he doesn't want to talk to her and he just Mm -hmm. blows her off and you know um just you know decides oh i'm I'm not i'm gonna treat you differently now without telling you why which is certainly obviously well i mean plenty of people would argue that's how a, a, a guy would generally handle bad news but certainly how a kid would yeah yeah, I, you know, and, and for me, it was like the Latin Quarter is such a Neverland place as well as all the stuff about, you know, kind of appreciating the old and what have you, um, that watching Umi in it, uh, watching Umi like go in there and have to deal with it and kind of falling in love with it also seems to kind of be something of a kind of a childhood release the sort of valve opens that she could be something of a kid even though she's also kind of organizing the cleaning uh there's that again so there's also this these moments i think of tenderness are also moments of transition and it it kind of speaks to this coming of age spirit that this film has both nationally uh and in these individuals well it was kind of funny though watching the english version i mean you mentioned you know bo bridges was uh whatever it was, the chancellor's voice. But I remember I picked up uh, Anton Yelchin was in there. Oh, was he? Who? I think he was Shun, was Anton Yelchin, if memory <laughs> serves. Okay. Um, yes. But it was definitely a bunch of recognizable voices that yeah. on some level sort of accidentally extracted me a little bit because then I was like, oh, I know who that is. Hold mm-hmm. on, let me IMDb that voice real yeah. fast. Christina Hendricks was, sorry, sorry. I don't know how to pronounce that. I think that was the oh. friend. Yeah, the kind of wide-jawed friend who... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I should talk. Yeah, I did not see that one. I didn't see the dub one. I usually try to watch the subtitle one if possible, but it does require more concentration. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of dubbing, though with this movie, I'm watching... Um, or I watched the dub version of Spirited Away. And it actually works pretty well for, I think, this kind of, you know, for animation. Because it's like, you're not... The performance is not like two performances on top of each other. That kind of doesn't make sense. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of, I think, works. Yeah, it was done pretty well. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't, I mean, other than obviously recognizing that, you know, the voices didn't necessarily fit the, the character um, and somewhat recognizing who they were, it didn't throw me off in terms of, you know, the timing or anything wasn't bad. Yeah, or it's not like a dubbed live action. Right. No. Like it tries to be, yeah, I can't do it. I don't know how people watch those. No, I would just watch that with subtitles, but yeah. about two minutes into this, once I figured it was okay with an English, uh, English language version, I just stuck with it. I'd like to once again, congratulate our winner of the week, Mahoney, a uh, solid victory. At least I had one Yay. point on the board. So. Yeah. 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 The villagers rejoiced.
Yay, we're rejoicing. Yay. In addition to our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. What club would you like to join in the Latin Quarter and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Mahoney, for joining us today. You're welcome. You could probably find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15. We also have uh, B-side podcasts that are coming back after a bit of a delay, thanks to uh, the busy month. Um, but B-side is our sister podcast, and we go into the movies in a little more depth there. I can also be found on Twitter at the nickname. Join us next time for Talking Trivia Trivia, where we take a break from looking at just one movie and do actual movie trivia from a variety of movies. Stay tuned for a sample trivia question. Ding, 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 ding. All questions in round three will be related to 2008's The Dark Knight. What does the Joker do with his half of the money? I think Tom jumped on this one. Did I go? Oh, uh, he burns it. What a wonderful scene. I love that. What do you do with somebody who doesn't really care for the, the rules of society, how things are judged, <laughs> you know, and what success is built off of? So I, I, I really did like that portrayal there. Any thoughts? I just, I know this is more. The thing that bugged me is when he was standing, when he was waiting for the two, for them to blow the two ships up and he literally was sitting there going, and he, it, it, it literally reminded me of the Grinch literally being like, <laughs> there's no, there's, there's no cries down in <laughs> I can see that actually. Now that you but that's it what it was. He was yeah. literally standing there with Batman waiting for the ships to blow up, being like, they'll blow each other up. And it was literally out of like, there are no there are no explosions <laughs> down in Gothamville. Like, I, like, I don't know that bothered me. Yeah. I always kind of just wondered like, does he steal everything from the grocery store or does he like steal stuff from restaurants or like Custom how does he made. go about how does he go <laughs> he, he, he farms his own food he's a farmer yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. he's self-reliant he, he collects he the fertilizer window. puts yeah. it into the bomb he has window boxes window boxes and his, and his a little fertilizer studio. off to the side yeah. for his uh mm -hmm. you know, his hydroponic garden there <laughs>